Hello and welcome to Briffa Soundbites. Join us as we explore the wonderful world of intellectual property and how all businesses, regardless of sector and size, have IP to be unlocked and used to expand and grow the business. Hello, I'm Eamon Chalk, and in today's episode, I will be talking to Annie Warburton. Annie is CEO of Cockpit Arts, an award-winning social enterprise and London's leading studios for contemporary craft and design. She curates exhibitions and writes, presents and broadcasts on craft, art and design in the UK and internationally. Annie, thanks for joining. It's a real pleasure to be here. Nice to see you, Eamon. And it's great to see you too. Now, our listeners obviously can't see you, so they're going to have to be content with <laughs> listening to us having our having our chat. But after after all these after all these months of lockdown, it's good to be able to it's good to be able to chat face to face again. Um, so, for people who don't know you as well as mm-hmm. I do, a good kickoff question is to ask you: How did you get into how did you get into craft? How did you end up running uh, running Cockpit Arts? Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, circuitously is probably the short answer. (laughs) Um, When people talk to me about careers and career development in the arts, I always talk about how careers in the arts are never linear. Um, And it's more like careering along than like a career ladder. Um, And certainly my own career is testament to that. So um, I did a degree in economics and philosophy, nothing to do with craft. Um, I spent most of my degree making theatre, writing, designing for, performing in. Um, So the thing that I most wanted to do when I graduated was go and run away to the (laughs) theatre. So I moved to Dublin. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Irish connection. Very uh-huh. good. <laughs> yeah, I ended up living there for nine years. Wow. Um, I moved to Dublin to go and train as an actor. And um, as you know, when you are a performer, you need to have a job alongside that. Mm. Um, and kind of by accident, I fell into a job at the Crafts Council of Ireland. And that job was more or less my first proper job, aside from acting or bar work or being a beef eater waitress. (laughs) So um, I was 22, um, very tender age. At the same time, I got married, which is a ridiculously young (laughs) age to get married. Don't try that at home. (laughs) Um, So I got married. Um, I was working on exhibitions in the Cross Council of Ireland. It had this amazing gallery in the Powers Court townhouse right in the centre of Dublin. Wow, yeah. And um, actually on my honeymoon, I went off and researched for an exhibition of automata makers. So I travelled all around, came back to England, travelled all around the southwest, interviewed and selected works. So um, that was my grounding in craft, and it was an incredible time. I learned so much. But then I went off and did a bunch of other things. I worked for a US publisher. I launched an e-business with Fragrances of Ireland. And then nine years later, I arrived back in the UK. And since then, I've really focused on craft, on artist development, and my most immediate job before cockpit was as creative director at the crafts council which was a lot of fun so that's the the circuitous journey yeah that is quite a journey yeah and so and so really it was during that it was during that kind of nine-year period where you really kind of fell in love with with craft and design and and I mean obviously you had a creative side anyway you went to you went to be an actor but really that's where you that's where you where you um found your found your creative juices flowing as they say 
and it was in my family as well. Right. Um, so I've got um, an uncle who's a very, very well established potter. Um, and then here's a legal link, actually. My, my grandfather was a gilder. Oh, wow. Um, and he was the gilder who gilded the Statue of Justice on top of the Old Bailey. Wow, that's quite a claim. Wow, so, really good. Uh, I've got this amazing picture of him sitting in her scales. And then another one where he's kissing. So it's like those 1920s, you know, he's in kind of um, Baker Boy caps and so on. Wow. Um, and there's another one where they're kissing these giant lips of uh, Lady Justice. That's incredible. I'm going to have to get you to share those, share those pictures with me. Um, but so that brings us up to, to Cockpit Arts then and where, and, and you, you know, you had all, you'd been at the Craft Council and then you came to Cockpit Arts. So, I mean, tell us a bit, for people who don't know what, what Cockpit, Cockpit Arts is, uh, tell us about the events you run, tell us about the studios and the people you work with. Sure. So, well, as you said at the beginning, we're, we're, a, we're a social enterprise and an award-winning mm. one. We're home to 150 makers, so 150 small creative businesses. Most of those are sole yeah. traders. Um, and we're talking, by craft, what we're talking about are people like hand weavers, fine jewellers, milliners, shoemakers, ceramicists, metalsmiths, wood turners, people who are making things with their hands. And that might be objects for the home, you know, a beautiful hand-thrown uh, mug, or it might be um, a collectible work of art that sells for tens of thousands of pounds. So there's a, you know, there's a whole range in terms of type of work, discipline and business model. Anyhow, we provide studios for those makers, but more than studios, we provide wraparound business support. That means that every single maker at Cockpit gets one-to-one -one support from a trained business coach who's an expert in craft. Mm. And they get a training program um, looking at all aspects of setting up their business, everything from writing the business plan in the first place to pricing their work to marketing it and of course IP yeah. um, so we know that that's essential because when you go to art school you're not getting that that business support and this enables people really to make the most of their talent and then all our services are subsidized uh, and 20% of our places are completely fully sponsored. So people wow. are there for at least a year and sometimes up to three years, totally free of charge. We receive funding to provide that. And for me, that's about bridging the gap between talent and opportunity because yeah. talent is everywhere. But um, setting up in business as an independent creative is hugely challenging it's really hard yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. and um you know if you've got family money or an independent income or you know then it's slightly easier or your mm. spouse or your partner supports you but most people don't have that yeah and so to get started at those fragile early stages you do need that support you do need a free studio you do need business advice and you need a community and that's what we provide yeah yeah and it's probably it's probably a sweeping, sweeping generalization. And so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. 
But you do sometimes find that the people who are the most creative and have the most flair and are just brilliant at what they do on the artistic side are maybe people who don't have the same appetite for, you know, doing a detailed cash flow projection or writing a detailed business plan or kind of getting their heads into, you know, some people get, you know, some people love that stuff and get great energy out of, you know, business planning and coming up with all the entrepreneurial stuff, but very often creative people, you know, are in, are more in need of the legal stuff and the business stuff to, to, as you say, bridge the gap between, between the, um, between the creative side and the business side. So what you do is really, really important. And do you find it's challenging being able to provide all of those support services and all of those, all of that training and all that additional stuff in circumstances where there's such diversity in terms of what the makers actually do? Because, you know, I mean, you talked about things like pricing and marketing and IP protection, the type of, the type of product that a weaver produces will be something complete will be completely different to what a glass blower produces and and you know so mm. i mean h- how do you overcome those kinds of challenges when you're putting your programs and documents and advisory uh, materials together okay well that's what keeps it interesting for us yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah, variety is the spice of life <laughs> um and then the, the the second thing before i get directly to answering your question the second thing to say is that that 150 that community of 150 is so rich in itself. So you do have many people who are just starting out, just graduated, Mm. getting going. But then there's a whole, at least a whole third within that community who are pretty well established. And so there's a lot of peer-to-peer support that, you know, one, you know, a, a milliner who's been, going for a couple of decades will advise the up-and-coming milliner on the best shows or the yeah you know, um you know how to work with your clients etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a lot of peer-to-peer um but in answer to your question I would say that what we're experts in and what my team are experts in is enabling people to succeed on their own terms so mm. it's that classic coaching relationship where yeah which is different from mentoring. And then on the mentoring side, we bring in people from externally to support the makers and advise them. So an expert, to take your example, you know, an expert in hand weaving to Mm. advise our community of weavers and so on. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's incredible. And I really like, I really like the, the, the piece around succeeding on your own terms, because as you say, that's at the very, very center of coaching. It's not about someone telling you what to do. It's about, um, it's about, kind of, you know, enabling you to enabling you to be able to do that. Um, and I guess, you know, on, on that theme, what do you think are, what, and it's a huge question. We could be here all day. What What do you think are the are the obstacles that 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 makers have to overcome? Because you, you know, you and I from our from our business relationship, we you know we talk about legal issues and we talk about IP all the time, and we know that one of the problems that that makers have is very often registered rights are inaccessible because of the expense and because of the system uh very often due to the nature of the work because you're dealing with independent arms or bespoke pieces rather uh unregistered rights are more appropriate anyway and then you have evidentiary issues around around um 
approving and enforcing unregistered rights. But that, you know, that's one tiny aspect of, of all of these mm. issues that the of all of these issues that the makers have to overcome. So you, what kind of what kind of obstacles do you think are out there for makers that that are, are, are the big challenges for them? Mm. I think first and foremost, it's people understanding and valuing the handmade. Yeah. Because when we've got so much that's mass manufactured, um, then you don't really know the time, the dedication and the skill and the imagination that goes into making a work of craft in whatever material. And that's not only all of those things that go into that individual object, it's also the 10,000 hours before that point where you've dedicated yourself to honing and developing that skill and bringing it to its pinnacle in order to make that object. So there's all the time before you even sit down at the bench to make that particular ring. Yeah. So communicating that and communicating why, why does this, um, this blanket cost x when i can go and buy one on the high street for a third of that price or a tenth of that price it's communicating the value is one of the biggest challenges Mm. yeah i can see yeah you can see why it's it's going to be really really frustrating for somebody who has as you say put hours and hours and hours into developing the skill and making the piece and then they feel like they're being undercut in the market because there isn't that there isn't that appreciation there and really it's about communicating that message to your end users your customers that you know yes you might pay more but you're paying you know you're getting more you're paying for quality um that kind of slightly leads me on to another um to another question that i wanted to ask you about which is the kinds of changes that you've seen because obviously you know you've you've worked in so many different areas of uh, creativity if you like to, to to use a very broad phrase or a very broad expression um and so you you must have seen a lot of changes in the way that the craft industry operates and the way that makers do business what are the big changes mm-hmm. that you've seen sure um well first of all contrary to the point i've just made i think over the last 10 years and accelerating over the last five years there's been a huge transformation in appreciation of craft and that's been really really welcome and in lots of different domains so at one level you've got the craft tipping into fine art um you've got you know grayson perry is probably um the poster child of, of that um but people getting really interested in how things are made and in ethically produced products. So it's, um, mm. and not just in terms of the production and knowing that no one's been exploited, but also things that are made closer to home with materials that are locally sourced. Yeah. That. Um, there's been... More recently, digital has really transformed the craft sector in lots and lots of different ways. It's transforming who's, who's making stuff and how, how they're making it, where it's made, and, of course, how it's distributed and communicated. Mm. Um, social media has been fantastic for craft. So that yeah. is where makers can tell their story and show the processes um, 
and I think more than anything in this year, people have been obsessed with watching uh, what I think the term is uh, clay jocks. So people (laughs) (laughs) throwing pots um, on Instagram, um, but also, you know, weaving and making jewellery. And that is where you can communicate all of the stuff we were just talking about, the, the skill and the time. Um, and it is really a wondrous process. And I think craft is about transformation. It's about taking a raw material, working with it and transforming it into something mm. extraordinary. And um, that's just wonderful. It, it's, you know, it's so inspiring to see. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, the whole the whole piece around technology is particularly relevant, as as you as you pointed out, because this year we were all confined to our to our bedrooms and dining rooms, and we had to we had you know some of us were running businesses from home and whatever. But for for craft in particular, going back to the point we made at the very very beginning, which is the the, the difficulty with turning your your creativity and your skill into something commercial, into mm-hmm. something saleable things like social media are just incredibly important because you can so easily now promote your product and talk about your product and showcase your work and showcase your skill set so yeah that's 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 something that's it's it's really really interesting to see that as a as a positive change because as we know there's there are negative sides to that as well when you have you know the more information you put on social media the easier it is for ideas to be copied and we we you know we've discussed issues like that previously um so i suppose that's the that's the retrospective piece if you like the changes that we we have seen what about what about the future of the of the craft industry if i told you annie you're queen of the world you can <laughs> you can change it all or you can you know, you're going to be the prime minister you can you can you can introduce new legislation what, what would you like to I mean, it's maybe it will just follow on from the themes that you just mentioned. But what would you what would you like to see? What would you like to see change? That's that's really interesting. I thought you were going to ask me what do I see changing rather than what would I like to see. Well, you change. you can answer your own question if you like. <laughs> um, but no, you've given me a magic wand and ultimate power, so <laughs> I'm going to take. You're that not going to say no to that one, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know the um, the one thing that I would want to change is education. Right. A rapid decline in craft education over the last decade um, at every level. Really? Right. um, Provision in schools, um, right through to um, degree courses closing. So just to give give you a couple of statistics, over a seven-year period, the number of students taking GCSE subjects in art and design fell by 50 percent wow that's really surprising Um, actually yeah yeah Yeah. so in art and design design technology um and at this during the same period the number of craft courses individual craft courses also dropped by 50 percent so you're seeing Mm. this contraction of provision right across the board um so if I were to wave a magic wand, I would reverse that very rapidly. Um, luckily, I do have quite a practical magic wand on this particular one. So uh, over the last two years, I've been chairing a panel that's developed the new T-level in craft and design. Wow. Um, 
for those who don't know what a T-level is, which I didn't until I, I got on board with this, um, it stands for technical level. It's an A-level equivalent. So one T-level is equivalent to three A-levels. So it's a post-GCSE vocational qualification that's mainly classroom-based with some work placement. And um, I was invited by the Department for Education and Institute for Apprenticeships to bring together an expert panel to develop the framework for this qualification. And it's been a really bumpy road bureaucratically. I won't yeah, bore you. With I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, last week we got to the final stage of developing that qualification. So it now goes into the, the hands of the education policymaker gods um, to transform that into something that then can be delivered in schools and colleges from next year so um so we, we're starting incredible. to address that yeah it is yeah, it's yeah. really exciting um so that would be my magic wand is to transform that and as i said we've, we've taken a, a, a an important a baby step but an important step towards that yeah yeah and i mean education is is one of those things that it's it, it's very often difficult to 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 work out which came first is education dwindling for example because um you know there's a reduction in government funding or is education or is the number of courses being reduced because there isn't demand for it and if it's and if it's mm -hmm. the latter then you say well well what's the what's the root cause of that is it because people who might want to get into uh to the craft industry are not seeing commercial opportunities they're seeing that it's difficult for people to start businesses they're seeing infringement of ip rights mm -hmm. um which i mean and there, there isn't an easy answer to that question i don't know if you if you if you have a view but but certainly mm -hmm. education is a good and, and having a course like the one you've just described is a good solution to that mm -hmm. because at least if you are you know a teenager who who has all of these incredible skills there's a there's a more there's a more clear path to to pursue yeah there's the opportunity to discover in the first place your your talent yeah um, absolutely. yeah i think i mean it's a huge question that you've just asked about the the chicken and egg question yeah. on education um but I think there are a few factors that play into it. One is that in this country in particular, we, we tend to devalue practical jobs. Mm. That's one thing. Um, so we devalue what I would call creative practical intelligence, the intelligence in your hands. Mm -hmm. so that's one thing. Um, it's much more expensive to teach craft than it is to, let's say, teach English literature or geography or Something yeah. Like that. Um, so that that's another barrier, um, and then you put your finger on this thing of visibility of craft careers. Um, so even if the young person has the opportunity to to learn and develop a skill, and even if the school is encouraging, then quite often parents are saying. Well, hang on a minute this isn't a real job yeah how are you going to pay your rent <laughs> yeah yeah now we know at cockpit we've got 150 makers <laughs> exactly. who do real jobs yeah. and there are more around the country so we do do a lot on making craft careers visible um and yeah that's that's a really important part of our our work as, as i see it 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. And I suppose that, I mean, that kind of leads me on to the final area that I wanted to ask you about, which is let us have your wisdom, please. <laughs> you know, we've, we've identified, you know, identified issues, we've identified areas of change and, and, and success stories. But if, you, you know, if somebody was coming to you now and saying, I want to get into craft, I want to develop my skills, I'd love to start a business. What, what would you mm. say to someone who was at the beginning of their journey? What advice would you give them? Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, be brave. That's really important. You've, good, you've, good one. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got to know that you're, you're up for this, right? Um, in all sorts of ways. It's quite lonely being a craftsperson. That's, that's another reason why cockpits makers love being at cockpit because there are, there are the makers the around. The community, yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, you're, you're most likely to be a sole trader. You're most likely to be there in your workshop, more or less on your own, day in, day out. And you, you need to be up for that. And mm-hmm. you need to be up for doing all the parts of the business because you're a sole trader so you need to be up for learning how to do your books or making enough money to employ someone to do that you need to be up for sharing your story as well as doing the making and that's it's really challenging because it is multifaceted um so be brave um be really super clear about your vision know know what you're about know how yeah. to tell your story right and then my third one is get yourself a coach get yourself some <laughs> yeah. yeah and be cheeky you know if you don't if you're like i can't afford a coach or i'm you know not at cockpit and i don't have have one you know there on the plate um then just go and be brave right right to a maker you admire and say once we can do this you know can I take you out for a coffee and have half an hour of your wisdom you know learn because people are Mm. very very generous and willing to give back yeah I think I think those are three excellent pieces of advice and actually it sits very it sits very closely with what we say to clients at BRIF as well the third point in particular about you know taking advice and being prepared to ask because you know with ip very often people kind of think well i need you know i need to have the idea first and i need to have the business and you know i'll i'll, I'll pay for a lawyer when i kind of can and we say no it's exactly the opposite you should have you know, should have that discussion first think about the ip think about what you might want to do and you're armed then with that knowledge right. and as you say you know even if you never actually pay for anything or or, or do anything in, in the early stages having had that discussion with someone who can advise you and support you as much as they kind of can um, can be hugely, hugely beneficial at the early stages. Mm. All right. Really good advice, Annie. And thanks for that. Now, as you know, because I warned you in advance, <laughs> there's, there's a few questions that we like to do at the end where we, which are a little bit off piste um, are a little bit off topic because we want to get to know you mm. as a, as a person. And so they're kind of slightly rapid fire questions. And so the first one is, what are you most proud of? Mm. Um, Well, I think this year I'm most proud of setting out 12 months ago as the pandemic hit saying, I want to go all out to support our makers at Cockpit. And we started the 12 months with 150 makers on board. We radically discounted their license fees and we supported them with all the coaching and so on. And we ended the year with 150 makers on board. 
plus no redundancies in my team. We kept everyone together and we um, celebrated with a festival in the middle of the year. <laughs> and um, Yeah, yeah, it, um, that's what I'm most proud of this year. That's a really, really good one, yeah, and 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 a huge, huge undertaking and a huge, huge achievement given given the year we had. Uh, so, for my second rapid fire, if you if you didn't work in craft, now you've already told us you were almost an actress and you almost did all these other amazing things, but if you weren't in craft, uh, what w- what would you be or what would you do? Mm, um, well, you've you've kind of hinted at it. Um, I think <laughs> I, I think I squeeze in all the other things into my job now. So I do a lot of writing. That's what I most love more right. than anything is writing. So I do a lot of writing. Um, so that, and then I like to be, you know, I, I'm interested in influencing policy and in social justice and the piece I've just been talking about in the team yeah. level is part of that. So as I say, I, um, I incorporate it all into my job as it is. Okay, that's good. That's a really, really good one. Uh, and now for a slightly odd one, my third rapid fire, if you could go back to any time in history for just one day, <laughs> uh, where where would you go and when would you go and, and why? Oh my goodness. So the whole of history. <laughs> Wherever you, whenever you like. The whole of the world. <laughs> okay. No pressure. <laughs> just one day. Um I think I would like to go back about 17,000 years. Oh, wow. To the Dordogne, uh, to the Lascaux Valley. I would like to be inside those caves with the wood smoke and the candles flickering. Wow. And the ochre or the charcoal on and in my hands. I would like to be there whilst those incredible cave paintings were coming to life. Wow. That I mean we've we ask this question all the time, but that's a that's that's the that's the most um that's the most interesting answer I think I've heard so far. That's a really, really good one. Well done. <laughs> Um, and so for my last rapid fire, um, who do you admire and, mm. and why? Mm. Okay. Well, first of all, I really, really admire all the cockpit makers. I think they're incredible. Mm. Um, that goes without saying. But um, the person, one of the people I most admire is um, a friend of mine who um, I've known since we were 18. Um, she, her name is Tamsin Cumming. She's a colorectal surgeon and she wow. was a pioneer, is, was and is a pioneer in her field as a woman in surgery, breaking through all of those glass ceilings. Um, she's also done equally pioneering work in terms of campaigning for everyone to be vaccinated against HPV. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's there's this huge social justice aspect to her work. Um, and she's now leading work in her field, you know, as well as healing people and you know, all of that. Saving the world. Day, yeah. <laughs> you know, she's pioneering work in diversity in surgery. Um, and above all, she's tremendously good fun. She's got a wicked sense of humour. She's a brilliant friend. So uh, Tamsin is the person I most admire. Okay, that's amazing. Well, you have to make sure you send this to Tamsin when it when it goes out. Annie, <laughs> she'll she'll be glad, I'm sure, to hear she got 
a big shout out. Okay, that's great. Well, Annie, it was great to speak to you and thanks for giving me time this morning and uh, looking forward to catching up again soon. Thanks so much, Eamon. Our guest today was Annie Warburton. Thank you for listening to Briffa Soundbites. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. You can get in touch with us by visiting briffa.com. 